So the Dukes of Stratosphere project sort of keeps XTC's hat in the ring. Virgin was probably prepared to walk away after Mummer and Big Express were such commercial failures. They were feeling like, you know, look, we had some hits in this little gap period between drums and wires and English settlement, but these guys are pretty much done. By this time, XTC's drummer has left the band. Terry Chambers is like, I've had it with this shit. You know, when Andy says he's not going to tour anymore and he's having all these emotional problems, he quits the band to kind of establish, you know, that adult life I was talking about earlier. That's another part of the reason that Mummer and Big Express are so sort of weak and, and incongruous. You know, the use of early drum machines, you know, not really a great mastery of how to produce them properly along with analog instruments. Uh, and then session drummers. But again, this Dukes of Stratosphere project where they do these sort of spinal tappy, you know, magical mystery tour parody songs ends up becoming a legitimate little hit without necessarily anyone in America knowing that it's XTC. I mean, of course, you know, the British press didn't take long to figure it out, but not a lot of kids over here who were listening to, as I said, you know, like the Bangles started out with this um, Paisley Underground movement on the West Coast. The college kids just started playing it and thinking it was a cute, you know, sort of adorable idea. There's a massive undercurrent in the 80s of bands that are making fun of themselves. They're making fun of the idea that they could ever be taken seriously or hope to be taken seriously or, you know, make it or become rock stars. There's a self-parodic aspect to so many of these bands. And one of the things fueling this is radio DJ Dr. Demento. And he's playing what essentially you would consider novelty songs, but they're sort of snidey and nasty and funny. Or they're absurdist and Dada. You know, there's famously one of the big ones early was Fish Heads. This nerdy kind of uh, self-referential, you know, self-effacing attitude was endemic for all the underground college bands. That died so hard after Nirvana and it's never come back. I don't know. Is it, you know, do I miss it? I kind of do. Do you want to go to work today? Bar. 
Virgin really felt like XTC had a great shot to just clean up with this market on top of, you know, having had a couple of bigger college radio hits in that REM kind of way. So having been told by Virgin, you know, we're going to drop you if you don't do what we say. You're trying to, you know, become an adult and have an adult things and lead an adult life. But you're this band that's on this record label and you have this manager who has completely fucked you over. You know, they've initiated sort of court proceedings against him, Ian Reid, and he is just such the typical upper class British twat driving a fucking BMW 3 Series with a gold watch. It makes your skin crawl when you just even see the guy. And what's the plans? I know you've got a single coming out very soon. Yes, Life Begins at the Hop. It's the first one that um, Colin Moulding has written for as a single. And um, we've got high hopes for it. It comes out on April the 27th. Um, it'll get uh, a massive push from the, the record company. They're more than convinced it's going to be a hit, so we're keeping our fingers crossed. We've begin, begun to get a, a bite of a hit in Australia, so we might have to go out there. Oh, that sounds yes. very pleasant. Right, yeah, it's funny. I've a single, uh, the last single, Are You Receiving Me, which really hit the dust with an emphatic bang over here. <laughs> but absolutely no way that uh, yes. it's starting to pick up in Holland. And uh, last week, Last Friday, it was uh, number 35 in, um, mm -hmm. in Australia, so it's happening over there. So we might well go over to Australia. Other than that, um, obviously America is our prime target. And so XTC, you know, gets into this lawsuit action against him because he's essentially been representing himself as the band and corpus to fucking banks and taking out lines of credit and loans against their potential earnings and publishing and royalties himself and not telling the fucking band it's like absolute classic evil asshole manager stuff and xtc can't talk about it because in england they sealed the proceedings and when there's a gag order what we would call like a non-disparagement clause or whatever when those get put on legal proceedings legal rulings in england they're like forever like i i think any partridge's son might have fucking problems if he ever talks shit about ian reed you know add to the fact He's coming off this drug thing. He's, they're not touring. They're getting all this pressure from the record company. They're making no fucking money at all. And, and XTC, you know, is one of those bands that is just completely straight up, no nonsense. They talk about the fact that they don't make any money. As far as we're concerned, we're not going to get clobbered for tax much in any case because we're not making that much money. Oh, oh yeah. No, are we see, no, this is typical. I hope you're getting this on film because this is, this is typical of 99.9 .9 reoccurring percent of people's attitudes to anyone they can see on television or who've made records that they assume they're rich. Yeah. Uh, and we're not rich. I've got the best shirt on. we <laughs> <laughs> nice trousers. But, um, yeah. It's, uh, like 80% of, of the groups that you see on top of the pops, you know, I mean, they're not rich. They really aren't. They haven't got a penny to scratch their ass, really. It's just like a big front. You know, the record company put them on TV, you know. It's all borrow, borrow. You're in, you're in debt, you know. The vice was getting tighter and tighter on them. And they had no choice but to sort of try to turn the corner on becoming a commercially appealing band in order to both get Virgin sorted, get out of debt, and settle all of these obligations, which, again, they didn't know about the extent of these obligations or how horribly they were weighted against them by this fucking manager. 
So Andy Partridge is already miserable. He's already come to the conclusion that a life in music is not what he had hoped or dreamed it was going to be. What happens is sort of infamous. They are told they're going to work with a big name producer and everyone decides, well, you know who'd be great for this? Todd Rundgren. The reason the label felt like Todd Rundgren would be the best bet is that A, he had transitioned to being, you know, a pretty legitimate mainstream producer. But B, he had done a Beatles tribute record himself in 1980 called Deface the Music. His band Utopia, which had been this kind of weak, reedy, proggy kind of Zappa thing. Todd got obsessed with this idea of making kind of dog's body Beatles songs five years before XTC does Dukes of Stratosphere. And you can go right down the line. It's almost like Spinal Tap. You know, it, it predicts that whole um, give me some money and the, the early, you know, Beatles jokes that the Spinal Tap did so brilliantly, Christopher Guest and company. And it's so germane to the problem that happens with Andy Partridge and Todd Rundgren. Andy Partridge just can't stop. He can't stop needling. He can't stop trying to get the better of someone. But this game is not something that every person wants to play with another person. They're both sort of alpha males mentally. That's their sort of alignment. They think that they're the, the smartest cookie in the room. When they're trying to do Skylarking, you know, Andy's got all these ideas. They've done seven fucking albums. It's not like the guy just walked in off the street and is like, you know, jangling away and has no idea how to write a middle eight. The guy is really seasoned if, you know, anachronistic songwriter. So when they start getting into the studio, everything is a huge ego brawl between the two of them. It's just constant matching of wits, constant sizing each other up. Despite all their running fights and, you know, getting in each other's kitchen and Andy questioning every fucking tick of the, you know, board or fader, they end up producing a really incredibly strong album. It's their signature album. I mean, I, I, there's really no question because it still maintains the the kind of, you know, pastoral English character of English settlement. And, and it has just a little bit left of the kind of harsher Black Sea, you know, social indictment stuff. Todd Rundgren's got his version of what happened with Dear God. He says Andy basically lost his bottle and wouldn't release it. He was afraid of the reaction to releasing it. And that's why it doesn't appear on the initial pressings. And then Andy says, well, we were out of time. The record was too long. We had to cut a song. And I didn't think Dear God really fit with the feel of the rest of the songs. Dear God does not sound particularly in line with the rest of the record. But it sounds you know, very much in line with something like R.E.M.'s Life's Rich Pageant and a couple of other you know, acts that are getting attention here in the mid-80s, there's a sound coming around, uh, and it, it allows the acoustic guitar to kind of finally get back in the, the mix. And so, unexpectedly, you know, they had this very sort of REM-sounding single in Grass that was you know, completely dedicated as the single almost from the beginning, and the B-side is Dear God. And what happens is that gets out in America, college radio starts playing it, and it absolutely blows up. And it becomes like a literal moral panic in the United States. They're banning the record. They end up shooting this video that's really dark and, uh, and kind of intense of, you know, Andy railing away into the camera about, again, the hypocrisy of, of Christianity and organized religion writ large, the arrogance of assuming you know the answer to whether or not there is a God and, and this, you know, fucking book that necessarily has to have been written by people. It's fucking written by our hands and our languages that we fucking made up. He gets that, all of that kind of agnostic rage into a fucking beautiful little folky pop song. Yeah. 
And it scared the shit out of the moral majority types. And it really did cause a legitimate national furor in America. You know, the album itself, this delivers on the promise of English settlement. Obviously, fans love certain things on Mummer and Big Express, and, and, and people love the Dukes of Stratosphere project, right? But if you just went from English settlement to skylarking, Jesus, man. I mean, I, the weight, critically, that would have on the historical memory and referendum on XTC, English settlement, skylarking, oranges and lemons. I mean, that would be so monumental, a string of albums. But, you know, life doesn't work that way for every band. It certainly didn't for XTC. Please don't pull me out This is how I would want to go Skylarking both establishes and reestablishes XTC in America because it's been more than a college generation since making plans for Nigel uh, and a full college generation uh, since Senses Working Overtime. So the arrival of the Paisley Underground, the, you know, the ascendancy of REM, all these things I've talked about, the inability to tour sucks because it would have been fantastic for Virgin and for the band's prospects if they had gone on some gigantic American college tour. Uh, Robin Hitchcock did that. That was what established him. You know, and I mentioned Dr. Demento. That's where Robin Hitchcock broke through with Balloon Man, which was marketed to Dr. Demento in 120 minutes, essentially as a novelty song. And then people get Luminous Rose and they start really listening to his music. They go back to the Soft Boys. And, and it's like, this guy is a historic power pop genius. Where, where have I been? Robin Hitchcock gets a great deal with A&M and he does sort of his big college radio period. He goes with Globe of Frogs, Queen Elvis, Perspex Island, which is a hugely overlooked um, record. Uh, and he finished that up with a really doleful record, um, Respect. And it, it really set him up uh, to have this kind of worldwide cult following that has uh, continued to kind of water and encourage Robin Hitchcock's songwriting. And we've now got a synergy where Robin Hitchcock and Andy Partridge uh, are working together. They have, apparently they've had a few, you know, demo sessions that they did over the years um, at various points when they were encouraged to work together. And now they've come back as these kind of, you know, aged masters to polish off uh, the kind of initial ideas they had together. You See the handwriting 
the snails and the smooth silver rails translate the tales that the hieroglyphs tell. And that really, you know, and the, and the marketing around that is like, oh, you know, it took me a decade to get over being jealous of that guy. They both basically saying the same thing that, you know, they kept hearing about the other, like, oh, you're really good. You should hear this guy, Robin Hitchcock, you know, vice versa. And, uh, you know, that's all water under the bridge. And sometimes that's the, the kind of motion that needs to happen in your career to get over shit and work with those people that were sort of your, you know, your frenemy, you know, that, 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 um, that co-conspirator that's out there doing their own thing, but sort of in your lane and, and speaking the same language to the same sort of audience. With the success of Dear God and Skylarking, Andy Partridge is now going back to Virgin saying, look, we did what you asked. Can we just get back to doing what we want to do? Look, if we can make records that sell, that aren't complete sellouts, we have a chance to make some money. They listen to sort of corporate suggestions and they head out to Los Angeles to record what will be a sort of no holds barred attempt at writing pop songs, pop songs that, you know, XTC can be proud of that will be in line with their sort of historical reputation, but that are aimed at the radio really explicitly. And the one that just absolutely killed me is King for a day because King for a day has that awful fucking tempo that comes from the way you make me feel by Michael Jackson, which he completely fucking stole that from a guy called Gavin Christopher. Christopher had released this single, uh, One Step Closer to You, in 1986. That was a pretty big club hit. You know, I mean, it went to number 22 on the charts. There's no fucking doubt Michael Jackson heard it. Uh, and it's another example of him. You know, he, he ripped off shit left, right, and center. Because he's, you know, he's on top of the mountain. What are you going to do? The worst that happens is he's going to cut you a check. So that tempo became so dominant. So many bands did the way you make me feel like kind of R&B shuffle tracks. And King for a Day is that same stupid tempo. I mean, clearly aimed at the radio in a way that I, it just really turned me off. The lyrics are great. Partridge is definitely back in his own headspace on Oranges and Lemons. The enduring song from it is Mayor of Simpleton. It is a wonderful piece of pop, you know. It's classic. It's it's got all the the bird stuff in there, and and uh, it's got a round at the end, and the bass line at the end of the record. I mean, that is one of Molding's absolute pinnacles as a player and as a songwriter. If you get past the surface sheen of Mayor of Simpleton, and there's a lot of sheen, uh, it is one of the most complicated, beautifully arranged pieces of pop.
XTC's reputation is of being arch clever. And that's kind of a limiting attitude. It sort of borders on sneering kind of condescension. Uh, and I think it helped as much as it hurt, maybe, around the time of Oranges and Lemons in terms of expanding the audience, which obviously was the label and their intention. After the album cycle for Oranges and Lemons wraps up, uh, it's clear that XTC will never make a dime. And they've been going for, you know, 10 full years at this point as a mainstream, you know, pop act. Doing the videos, you know, in the beginning, touring like crazy. They've given a huge part of their young adult lives to Virgin Records and they've got nothing for it. Virgin just keeps running up all these huge recoupable costs on them and their recordings and blaming the band for saying that they're too picky and they're too fastidious and they take too long and consume too many resources in the studio. Virgin showed absolutely no sympathy to them because, of course, you know, executives have changed. The studio has changed. All the people running A&R and management at Virgin have rolled over and changed. So, the, you know, the people coming in, they don't really give a shit about them. They're just seen as this difficult, entitled old band that, you know, has a couple little mid-level hits every once in a while. And the referendum on that really comes to a close with none such. And, you know, they write a pretty bombastic rock hit in the Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead. <laughs> The production on None Such is sort of restorative, I would say. Oranges and Lemons was too glossy. None Such gets back to the big room sounds that made them famous on Black Sea and English Settlement. Uh, and he has a few really powerful pieces. Uh, Rook, which is one of his favorite songs I think he's ever written. Uh, again, Ballad of Peter Pumpkin has a great rock single. That got thrown on compilation CDs. Virgin was promoting the hell out of that song. They really thought it was going to hit in America. You know, and it, it sort of did. Again, another black and white video, some decent production value. It's a fun watch. There's great material on this record, for sure. But again, they didn't have a great experience with the producer. The LA thing was like a submissive period. Like they just let that just go. They didn't get their hooks in as much as, as they had, as Andy had personally anyway with Rundgren. And it happened again with Dudgeon on this record. And so, you know, yeah, he's a famous old line, you know, he's like pals with Bob Harris and shit, I think. You know, he goes way back in, in British music history. It wasn't a great fit. Again, it's like, there's no way you can get around it. Andy Partridge is extremely difficult to work with up through this point in their career.
this is really where Partridge, to me, tipped to becoming kind of a bore and a boring Hector. And it didn't really seem like on a lot of these songs that he even cared about the, you know, supposedly bilious things he was saying and these, you know, witty reposts and indictments of the aristocracy and politics and war and all this stuff. It's supposed to be fun to listen to ultimately, right? Like, or, or touching, let's say at least. And a lot of these songs fail to hit in, in either of those ways. XTC wouldn't record again for like almost a decade um, because what happens is after this album, they go on strike. They can't get out of this awful contract situation with Virgin and Virgin continues to handicap them by stacking more and more recoupable debt on their sort of running ledger. Like they've got a a tab that's three fucking blocks long with Virgin that they're never going to pay off. And it's not for lack of trying. They've done everything Virgin asked. They've all but sold out in the last couple of years at Virgin's behest. You know, I went and did a record with Todd Rundgren, just like you asked me. I got through that shit. I didn't have anything. You told me I needed another album. I gave you, you know, another Dukes of Stratosphere record. I went to fucking LA and did the most glossy, radio-ready pop shit I could stomach for you. And I kept trying to stay up to date. I gave you a big, booming rock single for none such. And I got shit out of this. I got nothing. So my only option to re-empower myself is to go on strike and say, if you're not going to liberate me from this bullshit contract and you're going to tell me I can't record music for anyone else or I'll be sued, then fuck you. I just won't record any music. I'll just write until I get to a point where we get a judgment or a settlement that allows me to record in a way that is mutually beneficial to both parties. And I'm not just out there getting absolutely fucking skinned alive by you and unable to establish a real, like, adult functioning life. So XTC as an entity can't release any new music. Well, there's nothing stopping Andy Partridge from producing music. And what's happening in English music? It's the very earliest days of Britpop. Blur is out there. They're, you know, in their Seymour days, um, Blur's original name. They get signed up by uh, a really outsized character, Dave Balf. Dave Balf has been around since the Liverpool days. He's part of the Echo and the Bunnymen, Bill Drummond you know, crew of musicians and, and artists and thinkers uh, that all blow up and form like Zoo Records and, and all these other projects. So he was running with that crew. But then, you know, as we get into the late 80s, he starts to fancy himself as being a manager and a producer and a talent spotter. 
And he starts this record label, Food Records. And one of his earliest signings is Jesus Jones, who end up blowing up pretty big. Their first album, Liquidizer, was a strong hit in England and did well in America in college. Now, this is before the international success of Right Here, Right Now, uh, which printed money for everybody involved for uh, two years, probably. They ate off of Right Here, Right Now. Uh, and I mean everybody, not the band, but the label, Dave Palvey, everybody. But he's got Blur. And he wants to make Blur a baggy band, kind of, because baggy is still dominant. Now, baggy is sort of like Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, Madchester, all that stuff. Baggy called back to, you know, Psychedelia, to the 60s, to the Summer of Love, Jangle, the Birds. But it also fused that with funk. And so it's kind of like this psychedelic funk drug music. Um, and the Stone Roses had a much broader kind of tradition. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, Simon and Garfunkel to their first album. But their first album was produced by John Leckie because they wanted the guy who did the Dukes of Stratospheres records. And, you know, this is the thing about XTC is they were so far ahead on so many things. And Dave is looking for somebody who's going to get Blur, right? And there's no question that Blur has a lot of XTC to them. We're going to put out that, you know, British image number one photo and and this is our moment right to reclaim ourselves so balfi's thinking well perfect you know andy partridge has been doing that shit his whole life you know have you heard english settlement and the band were into it they went in and they did a bunch of demos but they were kind of an unknown commodity forever and when you hear them now it's like holy shit you know like coping is so different than it ended up being um, when they did the actual album modern life is rubbish with steven street Modern Life is Rubbish is so fucking bleary and flat. It has no dynamics at fucking all. I, I have always hated that album. But, you know, you go from there and Park Life, and, you know, honestly, I don't know how you can hear, you know, something like Park Life and just not hear Tracy Jacks. Are you kidding me? You know, XTC is all over this record and, you know, future records too. Like, listen to Helicopter. It's the exact same fucking chord in Beetle Bump. While they have this big influence on some bands, you know, in the early 90s and the Britpop heyday, 10 years later, there's an explosion 
of you know new rave whatever uh bands in england that sound fucking exactly like drums and wires black sea xtc i mean future heads hot hot heat even Block Party, you know, at, at points early on is heavily indebted to that upstroke, you know, attack, early heavy drum cuts um, style that XTC really invented. I mean, th- their whole unique English character fused with this, you know, kind of nervy, angular music. That's like their move. XTC absolutely distinguished themselves from the broad strokes of, quote, new wave. The police were incredibly technical and tight, but they were also hoary and melodramatic and and very classic and romantic where XTC just always maintained you know some tension there's always tension whether it's emotional tension longing uh, frustration or it's political social tension um, there's always something that Andy Partridge is gnawing on in in his best songs and it was hugely inspirational for so many of these bands but for me I look at it and it's like the cures Friday I'm in love right that's it's kind of a jokey wordplay song. That's that might as well be an XTC song. Like th- you, that could be on Oranges and Lemons. Just literally put it on there. If and if you've never heard Andy Partridge's impression of Robert Smith, holy shit. <laughs> Fucking devastating. The only thing he does better than Robert Smith is Bob Dylan. His Bob Dylan is frightening. I mean, the guy is the guy is just fucking brilliant. He's so brilliant across the board, but he's just a cantankerous fucking bastard to deal with. And so, you know, w- without any major drama, it just you know the same cycle probably repeated itself with Blur, which is he had some ideas and Blur felt like he had too many ideas, and it's the same shit that probably happened with him and Todd Rundgren. No doubt, Graham Coxon and Damon Albarn are going to come away from those sessions like the guy's turning us into fucking XTC. You know, Blur has debts like every band has debts. I don't, I'm don't. i not suggesting they were XTC copyists, but the way in which that DNA was sort of grafted into Blur's DNA, it was very important to them that, you know, that didn't tip too far and sort of spoil the broth. But Andy's influence over those guys is undeniable. I would assume he held greater sway for Graham Coxon than he did for Damon Albarn, but, you know, who knows? Unfortunately, this sort of spoils things for Andy. Uh, he doesn't get that, that killer word of mouth you need to become the, the buzz producer. Eventually, three of these songs come out on the box set for uh, Modern Life is Rubbish, which came out in 2012. And you can just hear they're not right for the band. It's not a fit. The blur sessions go busto. He gets pulled out. And, you know, the next thing he's able to do is a Martin Newell record, you know, which The Greatest Living Englishman is a, a neat record, but... It was a fraught process. Uh, you know, there was a lot of tension between them over Andy taking too much credit or Martin not contributing enough. Like, who knows? And, you know, like in, in Japan, other territories, it was released with Andy's name on the cover. Like Martin Newell featuring the genius of Andy Partridge or some bullshit. Like, it was terrible. And, and you know, he just, again, the guy just can't help himself. He got an offer to write uh, for Tim Burton. You know, like Robert, Tim Burton wanted Robert Smith and The Cure to write all of his music ever. He hit him every single time. When they were recording Disintegration, he had sent them the script for Edward Scissorhands and was like, I need you. This is you. I need you. I need you. You know, Susie and the Banshees, all that shit that Tim Burton listened to in high school. And XTC was one of those bands. And he goes out to Andy Partridge. He's like, I'm doing a movie. I've done a bunch of movies. This is the movie that's perfect for you. I'm doing James and the Giant Peach. And I want you to write the soundtrack. And Andy agrees to it. And Burton is ecstatic. But Burton's not directing it. He's producing it. And Andy gets in such a fucking fight with the director, Henry Selick, that it doesn't make the movie. So again, he shoots himself in the foot. 
Whatever this conscience that he has, this conviction that he has, whether that's what's driving it or it's just, like I've said, he can't help himself from just needling people and being a prick. It's blown up like every opportunity the guy's had. I think there's a point at which you can blame Virgin for certain parts of the difficulty of their career, but in large part, when you spend time with it and you read about it and you allow for his his opinion, you allow for his voice to kind of come through and, and be heard, you know, as you survey this whole thing, it's still really hard to not come away thinking he really was his own worst enemy. S-H-I-T is that how you spelled me in your dictionary for I'd fool you.